Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Andy Neal about his book, Had Me a Real Good Time, Faces Before, During, and After, published in 2011 by Omnibus Press. A fantastic rock band, Faces emerged from the wreckage of two other influential bands, Small Faces and the Jeff Beck Group. They went on to be one of the more successful commercially and critically acclaimed bands of the early 70s and, especially for two faces, Ron Wood and Rod Stewart, superstars in their own right. Wood with the Rolling Stones and Stewart as a solo artist. As the book's title suggests, Neil provides a richly detailed history of the five members pre-Faces careers, their tenure with the Faces, and what has become of them since the dissolution of the band. Of note is Neil's exhaustive history of just about anyone who had any connection to the band. Roadies, producers, label executives, wives, other musicians, and more. At this point, Had Me a Real Good Time must be seen as the definitive history of Faces, an important band that was an important part of an important rock scene. Andy Neil is also the co-author of Any Way, Anyhow, Anywhere, The Complete Chronicle of the Who, as well as compiling across the universe, the Beatles on tour and on stage. He writes liner notes as well as consults on biographies and documentaries. Neil's writing has appeared in Mojo, Record Collector, and Ugly Things. He lives in London, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Andy, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Great. Um, why don't we, we start off by you giving us a bit of your biography. Tell us about yourself, please. Well, I've sort of been writing about uh, popular music, particularly the 1960s and 70s, which I guess is my era. Um, I've been doing it now um, professionally for about the last 10 years or so. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, but it's always been an interest of mine, and I've, I've just always been sort of um, involved in you know, either contributing to other projects or my own projects, and it's just been an ongoing thing, really. Mm-hmm. And so you say it's your era. This, this is this is your time as a teenager and a young adult, the late sixties, early seventies. Probably the seventies more. I was a little bit too young. Um, just to, I just missed out on the sixties, although I caught some of the, the end of the sixties. I you know memories of that, but um, the seventies um, was probably the time that I was getting into new music, but also um, at the same time checking out. Um, what was happening, you know, from that period that had just gone, you know, because there was so much good stuff that was ha- that had happened that I sort of was a little bit. Uh, I, I'm the youngest of four brothers and sisters, so I sort of lived it vicariously through them, if you like, you know. Uh huh. And, and you grow? Did you grow up in London? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, and so, how did you come? You've written a book about the Who. Uh, how did you come to write about the faces specifically? Well, it sort of was a byproduct of, um, you know, a lot of the work that I'd done with The Who, that both bands were connected um, in in many ways. You know, they came out at roughly the same time and um, in 1964-65 in London. And, uh, you know, there, 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 there was a lot of parallels there where um, they were sort of both came from the mob movement that was happening in England at the time. 
and uh, you know, sort of they had a sort of a similar empathy, if you like, and also Pete Townsend and Ronnie Lane became very close friends, and um, Keith Moon was also a very close friend of, of Ronnie Lane's too. So there were these sort of parallels, and after I'd done the Who book, I thought that you know there'd been biographies on. Um, predominantly on Rod Stewart, but there hadn't really been a book that sort of looked at all five members of the band um, as as an entity or, or, or separately, and and sort of explored their roots. You know how they came out of sort of the, the same sort of club scene in London, and they all happened to end up together in in the end of the '60s and sort of started this band that would sort of go on to be very successful in the '70s. So I guess yeah, the, the, the groundwork laid when I was, you know, when I'd done the Who book, uh, and then it just sort of seemed right to, to or natural to do a, a book on the faces. Did, did you ever see the faces live? No, I missed them. Um, I was just, as I say, I was just a little bit too young. Um, it was at the time where I it was just, I wasn't old enough to see shows, although my sister, who's older than me, saw them uh, in about 1970. I think she saw them in 74, uh-huh. which was after Ronnie Lane had left, and they were just a little bit... Um, I mean, they were still a great live band, but, uh, you know, they, they changed once once Ronnie Lane had left and, and Tetsu Yamauchi came in on bass. You know, they, they the, the dynamic had changed. And, um, of course, they didn't last for that much longer. I think they only lasted for about another year and a half. So, I, unfortunately, I just missed them. Right. I was always a big fan. I always had the records. Yeah. You know, I, I could afford the records. I just couldn't afford the concert tickets. All the concert tickets sold out before I, I could get a chance to get to see them, you know. I remember my uh, my sister, who's just a, a few years older than me. I was looking at, in the back of the book. You have their, their complete tours from, from, from the band. And right. Yeah. I remember I grew up in, in San Diego in California. And I remember that when I was young, being jealous that she went, she saw the faces with, with Loggins and Messina in San Diego. And I, I remembered that when I looked at your book. Right, right. That, that would be 1975. 1975, yeah. I think that was one of the last tours they did. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. according yeah. to your book, it was, yeah, they had two tours. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. So yeah, let's... No, that was, ironically, you know, they, they, from, you know, when they first went to America, but right up to that last tour, especially those last two tours, you know, they were so popular in America. If you look at those tour schedules, they're just playing all over America, you know. Right. And I, I, where she where she saw them, it was, I think it's called Balboa Stadium, and I, it probably holds, right. I don't know, 8,000 yeah, people that, or that, so. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Well, let's let's get into your book proper then. Um uh, it be, the beginning is kind of biographies of, of the band members and, and, and where they grew up. Um, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, the era when, when they were all born in, in the, the mid-40s at the end of World War II or just after the end of World War II. And you, you spend some time talking about you know, the, the, uh, the influence that World War II had definitely on their parents' generation and on, on them. Can you talk about their, their early histories, their biographies, please? But I definitely think the war and that sort of post-war or the baby boomer generation that they were part of um, definitely sort of had an insight. Sorry, had a had a sort of formed um, how they would develop um, that that sort of very much uh, gang mentality, if you like, all for one, one for all, because you know Britain and you know straight after the war, it was a country of deprivations. Um, you know, there was what they called rationing over here, where 
you know, luxuries like sugar and, and even things like bananas and all that, you know, that it was all rationed because those luxuries, you know, the war just sort of wiped out um, things that I guess the Americans would take for granted, you know, because it was, a, it was for the ten, first 10 years after the war from like 45 to the mid 50s, you know, Britain was a nation that was rebuilding itself and rationing was a part of it. So all the guys in the faces um, that, in fact, um, there's a few quotes in there um, where Ronnie Lane's brother remembers, his elder brother remembers sort of playing on the ruins as a kid, you know, and or going down to the local market to look for um, jumble or rags for his father. And, of course, all these early experiences um, would turn up in songs later on from the band Looking Back, you know, particularly Ronnie Lane, the, the one I was referring to then was um, Debris, of course, which was on Another As Good As A Wing, but even Rod would look back to his childhood um, in things like Every Picture Tells A Story, just, you know, that early sort of working class life that they that they all had. So they were all from a working class background. Um, you know, they, they didn't own their own homes. You know, they, they weren't from sort of like relatively wealthy families. You know, they were um, from that generation that, that came up after the war. And, and also, I think that was a thing that was crucial later on, is that they'd all shared that same experience. Uh, I think if they'd been from different backgrounds, if, if, if sort of one was wealthier than the other or had come from a different, more classier background, then it may have affected them. It wouldn't have worked. But because they'd shared that whole sort of common um, breeding, if you like, then uh, it, it was definitely um, something that uh, was proved to be advantageous later. Mm-hmm. Um, how about how about the the popular music scene that they grow up in? So they they probably start being aware of popular music in the mid to late fifties and into the early sixties. What what kind of uh, influences are are the members having, and what kind of what kind of uh, pop music scene is happening in England at that time? Well, it was a very watered down pop scene. I mean, you guys were spoiled because you had rock and roll. I mean, you know, rock and roll started in fifty four, fifty five, and Britain was very, you know, the records were coming out over here, you know, like you'd hear Bill Haley and Elvis Presley and 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 things like that. But you know, it was it took a long time, and some would argue it didn't. It took until the Beatles for Britain to sort of actually produce its own sort of convincing or genuine version of rock and roll. But um, the guys in the faces were were listening to that. But in fact, they had quite diverse. Influences. I mean, Rod Stewart is a, is a case in point. I mean, his parents were big fans of Al Jolson, and he would remember his earliest musical sort of memory is, you know, being around the house and hearing old Al Jolson 78 that his, that his mother would play. Um, and his, Rod was sort of the youngest of, I think, five children. And, you know, they, he came from a musical family, so there was always music playing around, but he, he just remembers that sort of almost like the old show tunes, if you like. Mm-hmm. He came from that background. Um, similarly, Ronnie Wood, when he was growing up in West London, his two elder brothers were into jazz, people like Big Speederbeck and all that sort of old traditional New Orleans jazz. Um, and rock and roll came a bit later for, for him, um, you know, with his brother Skiffle group. Now, Skiffle, just briefly, was a sort of a, a very British... Um, phenomenon and the fact that all these sort of exotic instruments like Fender guitars and, and drum kits and all that, you know, were way out of the reach of the 
able to play music. So these guys would get old washboards and, and you know, as a teacher's bass as a stand-up bass, and they'd make their own music. And, and Ronnie Wood's first gig was actually playing in, a, in his local cinema in between the, the movie shows, um, playing this, this former skiffle. So that was how, you know, that was his introduction to it. And, of course, you know, Ronnie Lane and, and Ian McClagan, they, they, they'd all listen to people like Buddy Holly, and, uh, you know, there, there's a story in there. Um, Ian McClagan remembers hearing, you know, Rock Around the Clock at his cousin's birthday party or his sister's birthday party. I have to go back to the book and refer to that. But, you know, so they're all hearing music either through their sort of um, elder brothers or sisters or they just heard it by chance on the radio or their parents. Or, you know, so the real sort of diverse... Um, skew, if you like, that they brought to their um, their, their, their influences. Um, they're not really what you'd expect from, you know, particularly with Rod, with with those with, with an influence like El Jolson. You know, you'd expect somebody perhaps like uh, like Elvis or um, King Vincent or something like that. But no, it, it stretches back even further. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you mentioned that in in the book that there's a moment where in the 60s, and this is, I think, about the time when, when small faces are forming and the Yardbirds and later on the Jeff Beck group and, and the birds, yeah. the, the British birds, where you say that London changes from more of an, an R&B-based scene to a psychedelic blues and rock scene. Um, That's right. I mean, it all seemed to coalesce in London around about 1965, 66. I mean, 63-64, um, was when rhythm and blues, um, you know, the sort of Chicago rhythm and blues was being popularized by people like um, Alexis Corner, who, of course, was a big influence on the Rolling Stones. Um, and previously, these clubs in London, like the Marquee Club, had been catering to jazz, you know, to traditional jazz, what have you. And then suddenly this rhythm and blues thing came in. And then from then on, it just became obvious that there were a lot of groups that were sort of, had started off on a rhythm and blues kick and were probably quite sincere in what they were playing. But it, there, was so, there was such a diverse amount of influences that were, that were happening in London at the time that the music mutated and, and people were sort of hearing American soul music for the first time, you know, the stacks sound and um, and of course Pamela Motown which wasn't I mean Pamela was a big was, was quite popular in America but it was it was almost like a cult music in, in Britain it, it didn't really hit the hit parade until a bit later so all these guys were playing it and Rob was a, a big Motown fan you know he, he loved the Temptations and of course the Faces went on to cover a few Temptations tunes and then yes and then, as you say 66 into 67 was when the drug culture was starting to permeate everything and, and, and the music was changing. But, the, you know, apart from the small faces of, say, Ichiku Park and a few of the tracks on Ogden's Not Conflake and maybe a few other things, Here Comes the Knife is maybe another example, they weren't really a, a sort of a what you would sort of typify as a psychedelic group and, and neither was the Jeff Beck group. In fact, the Jeff Beck group were very much like a contemporary blues group. Um, like, say, Canned Heat or mm-hmm. some other similar band in America. They weren't really into that sort of um, what you could, would call like a psychedelic group like Pink Floyd or the Grateful Dead or anything like that. They didn't really, that, that 
whole thing bypassed the guys in in um, the, 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 the in their bands that they were in at the time before the Faces, mm-hmm. and, and that, that was that's quite interesting, really, that they weren't really a part of that. So then let's let's concentrate. I mean, there's a lot of groups that you write about that are pre-Faces, but let's concentrate on Small Faces and Jeff that group. Tell us, you know, briefly give us a summary of of, of Small Faces, please. So the Small Faces were one of Britain's most popular groups in the mid-60s, and uh, they were quite underrated at the time because they were sort of unfairly saddled, in my view, with a sort of pop pop group tag because they were all sort of had a, a similar image. They were all small. They're all quite cute. I mean, Steve Marriott was sort of like the pinup, and uh, and uh, it tended to overshadow the music. I mean, they, they, they were very successful in Britain. I mean, I think they had something like um, ten top ten hits, and you know, they, because they were always sort of in the charts and and on the radio and things like that. You know, they weren't considered a serious. But they had a different image from, say, a band like like the Who or or the Yardbirds or something something like that. They were maybe a little bit more more hipper or a bit more credible if you like but you know they, they were actually a, a very fresh original band and they and they worked as a unit so well they were so cohesive um, they set off with another and, and as soon as Anne McClagan joined it was almost like the, the missing piece of a jigsaw and um, you know they just just image wise music wise they just in my view recorded some of the best singles, some of the best music from that time that uh, has worn very well. And um, similarly with the Jeff Beck group, you know, the Jeff Beck group were put together um, after Jeff had left the Yardbirds or was pushed from the Yardbirds, whichever version you believe. Right. But, uh, yeah, and again, they were more, not so much on record, but more as a live act. That they they really delivered the goods live because Beck wasn't necessarily a frontman, and that's where Rod came into the picture. And this is what sort of was like Rod's apprenticeship, if you like. Um, I mean, he, he'd seen in, in groups before, but suddenly with the Jeff Beck group, um, and because Beck was such a a cult hero in America from his time in the Yardbirds, but by the time the Beck group first came to America in 1968 and debuted at the Fillmore East in New York City, they, there was an audience already there, primed, waiting for them, um, primarily because of Jeff Beck's reputation, but they got one hell of a shock when they heard this guy with a really raspy voice singing like Sam Cooke or Otis Redding, you know, singing sort of quite heartfelt blues. They, they weren't expecting that, They weren't, and it's quite a well-known story that um, Rod was so nervous at that debut show that to start with, he started singing from behind the amplifiers. And people in the audience were wondering where this voice was coming from because, you know, he he thought everyone was there to see Jeff, Jeff Beck. They wouldn't be interested in sort of seeing him. So that that was just, that was Rod Stewart's introduction to America. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, for your story and the story of the faces, an important distinction, I think, that Jeff Beck group, uh, they went to America and, and small faces never did, correct? That's correct, yeah. Um, it, it's always the thing that, like, you know, the, the small faces were considered the band that should have made it. Um, you know, there so many British groups were going to America. You know, you, you sort of had that initial British invasion of the Beatles and the Dave Clarks and the Herman's Hermits and what have you. And then, um, 
it was this thing that the next wave were going to be coming over, and that included people like The Move and Jimi Hendrix, and sorry, not The Move, I beg your pardon, The Who and Jimi Hendrix. Um, even though Jimi Hendrix was American, you know, he had to go to England to become known, and then, you know, he was due to come back, and all these other bands that were sort of on the cusp of coming into America, um, sort of in the back, at the back door, you know, people like Traffic and Crocodile uh, Harem and all these sort of bands. But because the Small Faces weren't that well known in America, none of their records had charted. It was very hard to get a visa to tour America. The Musicians Union were very strict, and um, to try and get a visa to tour, or you know, was was difficult. I mean, the Yardbirds had incredible problems when Jeff Beck first came over. Um, you know, the, the trip was delayed while all these applications were looked at. And you really had to have a hit single or you had to have some sort of merit or distinction um, to do that. And the small faces didn't have that because until Richie Park came out in 67, 1967, they, they were sort of an unknown quantity. They were only really a, a cult group. And as I said in the book, um, by the time they finally were in a position to come over and do the gig, um, Matt, Ian McLagan, the, the organist, the band got busted. And of course, if you had a drug conviction um, in, in those days, you couldn't get a visa to enter America for at least a year. And of course, uh, that would have taken them through to 68 or 69. And of course, that was when Steve Marriott decided that he wanted to leave the band. So they, they, the original Small Faces never did get to America. More to pity. So then... Uh... Tell us about then uh, the 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 dissolution of both Small Faces and Jeff Beck Group, and then the creation of Faces out of that, please. Well, the Small Faces had sort of been together for about three years or so, and they'd had this pop image, which was quite grating on them um, because they felt that they were sort of worth more than that, and it was particularly galling to Steve Marriott because. Being the front man, he was sort of like the focal image of the of the group. But it was also at a time when, you know, the supergroups were coming through, you know, and and music was getting quite serious. Of, you know, the psychedelic and the progressive music that was that was around in the late sixties, early seventies, the drug culture, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And Steve felt that he wanted to be a part of that, or or. or accepted as something that was more than just sort of like a pop group, if you like. So, so quite unexpectedly, he decided to quit the group. You know, he announced it on New Year's Eve of 1968, and he left the band in the early part of 69. And so the other guys in the small faces, uh, Ronnie Lane, Ian McLagan, and Kenny Jones, were sort of left in the lurch, if you like, and didn't know where to turn. And initially they were going to break up, but they sort of decided to speak together and around about the same time the Jeff Beck group who'd been sort of touring to great success in America and they'd released the Truth album which was a quite a big radio hit in America and um, you know it was getting airplay and, and you know they were selling out concert halls but, but the Jeff Beck group was such an unstable band at the best of times that in between American tours Jeff Beck decided to fire the rhythm section which was Ronnie Wood on bass and Mickey Waller the drummer now Ronnie had always been a fan of the small faces so when he'd heard that Steve Merritt had left them he 
rang up Ronnie Lane out of the blue and said, you know, let's get together and, and maybe work some ideas out and get a band together. So they had nothing else to lose, so they just sort of got together. And, um, of course, Rob was still in the Jeff Beck group at this point, but he was still, and he still is to this day, a very close friend of Ronnie Woods. So he was curious to know what this old pal was up to. And so he started to drop in on these sort of impromptu, informal rehearsals that they were having uh, down in the Rolling Stones' old uh, rehearsal studio in South London. And um, initially he wasn't singing, he was just sort of hanging out. And because, you know, of their backgrounds and the fact they shared a, a sense of humor that was very similar, they, um, they were just sort of hanging out, really, and Rod wasn't really taking it that much seriously or even considering probably of wanting to sing with them, but they were gradually getting better and better. And because the situation with Beck was always so unpredictable, and when Beck finally cancelled an American tour um, midway through, which was to have included Woodstock, um, they came back, and that's when Rod decided, you know, I'm going to just throw in my lot with uh, Ronnie Wood and, and these guys used to be in the small faces and um, take it from there. And and that's really how they got together. Mm-hmm. Did, did they, they invited him to be the singer, didn't they? Or, or... That's right. Well, it was, it was obvious that he was good when he sang with them, that, that it worked, that it gelled. But mm-hmm. there was a problem in that Ian McLagan and Ronnie Lane in particular were wary of getting in another lead singer type, if you like, of, of the type that they'd experienced with Steve Marriott because, you know, the ego problems or the fact that, you know, there's, there'd be there's all the attention would be directed to the lead singer. That, so they were a bit sort of hesitant to jump right in and, and invite right in. But as Kenny Jones um, has said on many occasions, even as the drummer sitting at the back of these rehearsals, he could tell the, the considerable difference that Rod made to the band once he started uh, getting up there and, and playing and oh, sorry, and, and singing with them. So it was Kenny who first took, him, took Rod for a drink before one of the rehearsals and said, you know, how do you fancy joining up with us? And Rod said, well, do you think that, you know, do you think it would work? And he said, yeah, I'll have a word to the other guys. And, uh, and for those the reasons I've just mentioned, uh, Lane and McLagan were initially against it. Um, of course, Ronnie Wood was delighted because, you know, Rod was his friend and, you know, it was, he, he could see how it would work. But they, those two were the ones that needed uh, convincing and eventually they were convinced and, and, and it worked. But of course, it caused problems later on. Were, were they seen at the time as a as a super group, like Cream or something? or No, not at all. Um, not in this country. In fact, um, it might surprise some people to discover that they were actually considered a bit of a joke um, in this country. Maybe not so much a joke, but, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't rated very highly, mainly because they were seen as the sort of leftovers or the remnants of two successful bands. It was almost seen as some sort of like desperate move for these guys to get together because, you know, Steve Marriott had gone off to humble pie and for many people, Steve Marriott, you know, was the, you know, the voice and the songwriter and the small faces, even though the other guys in the band had a big part to play. And, um, you know, 
had that reputation from the Jeff Beck group, which helped. But leaving that aside, they were just a great live band from the from the word go. You know, I, I've heard recordings of some of those early shows they did in America, and um, you can tell that they're just the, the audience is buzzing because, you know, when they were on form, they were they they were unbeatable. Um, and and fairly quickly, uh, Rod Stewart begins to, to stand out, at least you know in in, in popular minds, and, and you know he be, starts becoming a star on his own. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> talk for a while about you know about the tensions that created in the band, and you know how does one maintain the solo? I mean, Rod Stewart's becoming a genuine superstar fairly quickly, isn't he? Well, yeah. I mean. It, it's 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 uh, uh, it's interesting because um, Rod had already signed a solo recording deal even before he joined the Faces because Rod was very much he, he was always very shrewd and he was always keeping an eye on you know his chances or or you know he was always hedging his bets and when he was still with Jeff Beck um, because he wasn't managed by Jeff Beck's manager Peter Grant who of course went on to manage Led Zeppelin as well. He was a free agent, really, in a way, to um, sign a, uh, a, a. He could have, he, he could, and he did sign a recording deal with a guy called Lou Reisner, who signed him to Mercury in America. And this was when Rod was just, you know, he was only sort of barely known as the guy who sang for Jeff Beck. He certainly didn't have any sort of um, solo um, credentials or anything like that. But. Lou Reisner. So Rod had signed this deal with with Mercury Records, and um, I think it was for four albums or something. And when he when the Faces when he joined the Faces, they signed with Warner Brothers. But there was a special dispensation made where Rod could record with the Faces for Warner Brothers as long as he um, you know promoted his albums for Mercury. So Rod had put out a couple of albums. Uh, the Rod Stewart album in America and Gasoline Alley, each one selling more than the last. Um, and it became pretty obvious that Rod's albums worked better than the Faces albums to that point. But they didn't sell, it, you know, they sold respectably, but not in huge numbers. But of course, that all changed in 1971 with Every Picture Tells a Story. And that was the album, of course, which contained Maggie May. And um, as soon as Maggie May started, you know, getting airplay and became a hit, then the album started selling. And of course, there was this amazing statistic where Rod was number one uh, on the album charts and the singles charts in both America and Great Britain, which I don't think anyone has ever equaled. And of course, you know, that that created a great strain because nobody it took the basis camp by surprise because you know they knew that you know Rod was. Uh, uh, you know, successful in his own right. People came to see him, not necessarily came to see the faces, even though the faces were a great band. A lot of people came to hear Rod, you know, and up until that point, it, it's sort of been able to operate um, on an even keel. But of course, as soon as Rod had that massive success worldwide with um, the album and the single, it, you know, the, it couldn't operate on the way it had anymore because obviously Rod was going to get more and more attention and it started to become increasingly Rod Stewart and the basis, which mm-hmm. caused great problems, you know, with promoters having to take signs down because it caused ill feeling with the other members and 
a lot of jealousies and a lot of despite that it all caused. Um, but they managed to keep a lid on it until eventually it got to the point where it really ground Ronnie Lane down in particular. And he just felt that he was writing all these songs that just couldn't be um, recorded by the faces because they weren't really in that style. And he just felt that, you know, increasingly the spotlight was on Rob and rather than the band. Um, so, so talk about then, please, uh, Ronnie Lane's um, end in the band. How did it come about? Well, you know, Ronnie was always um, a distinctive songwriter going back to the Small Faces days. You know, he co-wrote with Steve, but they, they very much wrote apart as well. And so Ron, Ronnie had always been writing songs, and, you know, he had songs on those early Faces albums. Um, but the way the Faces were, they were sort of a very ballsy, good time, you know, exuberant flash rock and roll band. But the type of material that Ronnie was writing and preferred to play was a lot more sort of introspective, a bit more sort of folky or um, country vibes, if you like. Or, you know, it was a lot more laid back than the sort of the, you know, the, the, the all out rockers of the places um, would deliver when they were live. And of course, Rod being the singer, you know, they, they couldn't, it, it, it just didn't work when, um, if they tried to do those sort of songs in the show, the songs that, that Ronnie was more, um, that was more sort of his style. And so Ronnie found that he was just writing all these songs that, you know, he really, suddenly his realization dawned that he would never be able to, let alone record them, but not even, you know, sing them live. And it just, became apparent that he was becoming more and more weighted towards Rod, in his view, than, you know, a democratic band, you know, where everything was sort of um, shared, even though it must be said that Rod always wanted just to be another guy in the band. But of course, you know, once he had that solo success, that was never going to work. And so I think that, that weighed down on him. And also he'd met this, he, he left his wife and he'd met this sort of rather charismatic um, individual who he'd known for a few years, um, called Kate, who was quite influential in telling him that, you know, he could pursue this sort of nomadic gypsy lifestyle, you know, which I guess went back to his childhood, his East End childhood, you know, the game the circus and and, uh, and things like that. So I think it was all these things being brought to bear and he just decided that he wanted out. And uh, when he first said it, you know, the others couldn't believe it because, you know, they could understand his frustration with Rod, but, you know, Ronnie was very much the, um, the you know, it was his band in a way, you know, because when the small faces sort of disintegrated, he was the one that sort of got the others together and, and you know, he was the one that was sort of organizing the rehearsals and he was, in a, in a way, um, you know, with, with um the other guys in the small faces, particularly Matt and Kenny, you know, he'd been there all, all that time. So for him to suddenly leave, as he did in 1973, it was a shock. And um, the fact that, you know, we wouldn't have those great Ronnie Lane songs on the albums like Debris and uh, Ooh La La and things like that, you know, that, it, it was, that wasn't going to work in, in the context of the faces anymore in, his, in, in Ronnie's view. So that's when he decided to bow out and uh, pursue his own sort of vision, if you like, artistic vision. Mm-hmm. And, and, 
uh, what about his re- replacement, Tetsu Yamauchi? Tetsu replaced all of the faces, particularly Rod, who are very big fans of three, uh, you know, Paul Rogers' band. And mm-hmm. uh, what had happened was Tetsu was playing in England. Um, he'd been in a band that had come over from Japan, and he'd ended up playing in three because three were actually a very big band in Japan. Um, and uh, so he'd filled in, he was filling in on bass, or I think he'd actually joined them. Um, at the time when Ronnie Lane decided to leave. And originally they were trying to get Tetsu's um, predecessor, a guy called Andy Fraser, who played bass in free, but Andy Fraser turned them down. So Simon Kirk, the drummer with free, said, well, you know, why don't you try out Tetsu? You know, he's a lot more easygoing and, um, you know, he's a good bass player, etc." And it was almost like um, it was a decision they made on you know, in haste in a way, um, because although Tetsu was a good musician, he wasn't the same sort of bass player as Ronnie, and more crucially, he didn't have that sort of shared background that they all had, um, and also he wasn't going to rock the boat like Ronnie would. You know, if Ronnie didn't like something um, in the band, you know, whether it was the choice of a song or you know, whatever. You know, he would he would speak his mind, whereas Tetsu was this sort of Japanese guy who spoke very little English, who sort of just you know stood in the background. And the other thing, of course, is that and and the thing that I talk about in the book is that he drank twice as much as the band did, which was mm-hmm. which <laughs> would be a lot, which was, which was going going some, you know. So uh, you know, it, it sort of it wasn't really going to work. Mm-hmm. Um. Since you brought it up, talk, you know, talk about their you know, the, part of their image. Drinking was a big part of their image, right? Um, That's they right. Had a, a bar on stage with a with yeah. a bartender, and did this? Did this? I mean, they were serious. They weren't pretending, right? Oh no, no, they were they were dedicated juices. Um, I mean, right right from the first American tour, you know, they used to buy cheap cases of the uh, juice. Rose or whatever it was, and, and handed out to the crowd to get the crowd blitzed as well. You know, um, it was all part of this sort of we're all having a party together. You know, there's almost like there's no boundary between the, the stage, the, the stage, the band, and the audience. You know, um, this goes back, I think, to also you know how they weren't really a part of that whole um, drug culture. I mean, they'd all dabbled in, in the drug scene, and of course, cocaine went on to quite a destructive part of what broke the band apart, but they were much more of a band that you would see in the holiday room after the show, you know, keeping the bar open, you know, and ordering round after round of drinks, you know. Mm-hmm. That was the whole thing. I mean, when they rehearsed um, in the early days, they would leave the rehearsal room and, and go down to the pub and, you know, have a few drinks, come back, rehearse some more did it ever affect their playing? Did they ever have oh, shows? Where... Absolutely. Some nights would help, but often it didn't. And, you know, with the faces, there's probably a good point to, to, to make now is that um, on a good night, the faces were untouchable, but on a bad night, they were bad. Um, and that, that was part of it. It was, but it could be anything. And it wasn't just the booze. It could be just that there was, you know, 
the sound system wasn't right, or or you know there was a there was a, there was a bit of a um, you know there was a bit of a thing going between a couple of members that you know there might have been a little bit of um, unpleasantness or whatever. But generally, it was the fact, more of the fact that sometimes I was just too incapacitated to um, deliver. Right. But it didn't happen that often. No. I mean, you know, it, 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 it was more a case of, like, you know, if you look at those tour schedules, sometimes they're playing, you know, three three shows, four shows on the trot, and, and sometimes that's really tighten them up. But other times, you know, they'd be very tired and, it would be, that would be reflected in their playing. So yeah, there's all sorts of reasons, really. But I guess the the one that um, sticks the most is the fact that they just used to like, uh, you know, imbibing, shall we say, before, during, and after a show. Almost seems, and, and you do make the connection, and the connection can be seen that the, it, it's a bit uh, pre-punk rock with the the connection between the crowd and and the audience and the band. And then the obvious connection is, is Glenn Matlock of Sex Pistols, who now plays with Faces, right? That's right. Well, I mean, Glenn was a—he's he, a classic example of, of a young British Faces fan. I mean, he—he he liked them because you know they came from a similar background to him. They were singing about sort of subjects that um, he could relate to, like you know, um, trying to go to a party and cop off with some girl, and or evolve while stealing their drinks, you know. All, all sorts of things. I was sort of like, you know, a young gang of lads who were out to have fun. And, you know, he, he responded to that. And the fact, too, that, you know, when they did play live, it was, it, they weren't trying to exclude the audience or just saying, you know, hey, we've come to play to you now, you shut up and listen. The audience had to be a part of it, you know, and uh, that, that, that stuck with them. And he, and he loved their look as well because, a lot of the, that's the other thing. The faces had such a great image as well. You know, they, they dressed well, they looked great. You know, and a lot of bands from those early seventies with like you know long hair, and denims and beards, and they just look you know no different from any other band that was. You know, there were so many bands that looked like that. Whereas the faces wore this really sort of glam. They were very glamorous. They were glamorous, and they were, they, they looked distinctive, but they were also quite um, accessible, if you like, for. Um, you know, people could relate to them. They weren't sort of like David Bowie, you know, Ziggy Stardust, you know, looking like an alien from outer space, or they weren't, um, you know, Brian Ferry or somebody, you know, dressed in a, in a tuxedo, you know, sort of like trying to be very elegant. And, and you know, th- th- these guys, they looked great. They looked, I mean, Rod and Ronnie Wood looked like brothers um, with the haircuts and the clothes and everything like that. But, you know, they were just, they, they were accessible, you know, they, you, you, they didn't jump into a, a limo and then hide themselves away up on the, the hotel rooms like Led Zeppelin did. They would be down at the bar, hanging out with the fans, you know, getting drunk, you know, meeting women, you know, whatever. You know, it was rock and roll, and that's what it, that's what it should be. How did this change as, as they start playing to more people? I mean, could, were they able to maintain this connection with the audience when they are playing to 10, 12, 15,000 people? It got more and more difficult, obviously, but they were still, I mean, Rod is, was and always is and has been an entertainer, so he's always going to try and get, he's always going to try and project for that person in the 115th row. You know, it's, it's always a part of him that he feels he has to deliver a good show. And so he always tried to break down 
those barriers that came from playing those big shows, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, right to the end, you know, those, those last shows, obviously, you know, they were superstars by the end of it, but Rod always sort of tried to re- retain that common touch that that, that, that always had. And, and and they would they would advertise their hotel right at the, at the show right, and yeah that, that, yeah, that, 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 yeah there was no holds barred they 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 were just there to to party down and and to just you know they they didn't consider themselves aloof that you know they they didn't want people to come back they were they were they, and they had dedicated fans I mean I, I there was one guy that I interviewed from St Louis. Who um, used to follow the band around, you know, that sort of area, St. Louis, Chicago, um, Detroit, etc. You know, because they were the sort of band that attracted that sort of um, fan element, if you like. But not so much a fan, but they actually became friends with the band. You know, they they they, they got to know them, and you know, the, the football, the soccer ball would come out, and they'd have a game of soccer up and down the corridors of the hotels and. Uh, you know, things would get out of hand, but it it was sort of good, cool fun in a way. Okay, it did get out of hand when, you know, the police at the local sheriff's department got called, but it was never intended to be sinister. I mean, some of the stories you read of, of bands like Led Zeppelin, where it did get a little bit sinister. The uh-huh. cases were just, you know, like a bunch of, I guess, like black boys out there. I guess it was a bit like Animal House, you know, the John Belushi <laughs> film. Right. So then, um, at some point, uh, Ron Wood starts being courted by the Rolling Stones. When when does this happen, and how does that go? Well, ironically, everyone associates Ronnie Wood with, with Keith, you know, the, the, the big Keith, little Keith type of thing. But um, funny enough, the, the one um, the stone that, that Ronnie first got um, friendly with uh, was Mick Jagger, because Mick Jagger was a big fan of the Faces. Um, and you know he would he would check him out when he had the opportunity, and he got to know um, he got to know Ronnie quite well because Ronnie's such a convivial guy; he's easy to get along with, and uh, you know they 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 became good friends. And then in 1973, um, Keith and Ronnie got friendly because Ronnie was starting to record his first solo album. And he was just like, you know, he was just like being on tour. He just invited everyone back to his house, except in this case, the people he invited back to his house were sort of like A-list musicians, like, you know, Mick Jagger and George Harrison and Billy Preston and all sorts of people, just, they were just his friends. And Keith sort of came back one night, um, he was invited back by Ronnie's then wife, Chrissy, and... Um, as he says, I, I came back for a night and I ended up staying there for three weeks. You know, they would just, you know, plug into certain substances and stay up all night recording and, and in that basement studio um, in Richmond, the house he had, which is now owned by Keith Townsend, the Wick. Um, and uh, and that's, that's how that the phone connection happened. But, you know, they, they, were, they, were, they were very close, but of course, it, it's, it doesn't take uh, a genius to work out that Ronnie, you know, was, the Stones were his band, you know, ever since he saw them in 1963. And, you know, to get an offer or, or a, a, you know, a sort of a possibility that he might.
might be able to stay with them. That's what happened when Mick Taylor left the band mm-hmm. uh, in 1974. They, they just suddenly needed a guitarist, and Mick was sort of saying, you know, like, you know, who, who can you think of? And, and as Woody said, you know, I was screaming inside myself, it's me, it's me, you know, but you couldn't let the faces down, you know. But I, in a way, you know, like, it was the writing was on the wall in 1975, you know, like, it, it was coming apart in a way, and Rod was getting bigger and bigger um, on the solo stakes. And, you know, when, when Ronnie sat in on the same summer tour that year, it was like, you know, hand in glove, you know, he fitted so well. So, you know, when he came back for that last, that final Faces tour at the end of the year in 1975, you know, a few of the guys I spoke to said, you know, <clears throat> as soon as he walked into the rehearsal hall, you know, he'd left for that tour a face, but, you know, he walked into the rehearsal hall a Rolling Stone, and, uh, you know, it was obvious that uh, it, it wasn't going to last for much longer. Um, and then Rod, uh, popular, you know, critical wisdom has it. And, and you mentioned uh, Rod's change begins with the album Smiler. But, you know, everybody knows you know, something happened with Rod where he kind of stops being, a, you know, a, a real rock and roller and becomes more of a pop star. Is this happening while he's with the faces? Well, he seems to have incredible taste and judgment for those sort of first four albums. You know, he didn't really put a foot wrong. You know, he had a great selection of songs to cover. His own songs that he wrote were absolute classics, things like, you know, Maggie May and You Wear It Well and, um, you know, uh, oh, my mind's gone blank for a second. Yeah, True Blue, songs like that, you know, that he co-wrote with Ronnie Wood or he co-wrote with a guy called Martin Quintington. Um, you know, it just seemed that the, the production, and, and he recorded the albums, in about two or three weeks, and it just it, everything just seemed to gel. But then I think I think cocaine played a big part of it, and I also think you know the the fact that he was being courted by the management and being groomed as a as a sort of a potential um, superstar on his own, and and just the fact that you know he'd, he'd met um, Hollywood royalty and people like Brett Eklund, and that, I think it just changed him really. You know, I don't think it cha- I don't think. His voice was always the voice was always the thing that sold the records in a way. I mean, it's just the fact that you know he's been doing some incredible stuff like Gasoline Alley or um, you know uh, I'd rather go blind, or which okay wasn't one of his songs, but yeah. And then in three short years, he was doing things like Tonight's the Night and uh, <laughs> Do you, know, you think I'm sexy? I'm sexy. You know, just just songs that just that even he now feels. If, you know, if you catch him at a certain time, he feels inclined to disown, you know. It just it was just one of those things. But it had, it, 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 to be fair, it didn't just happen to Rod. It happened to a lot of rock and roll guys from the 60s and 70s where somebody once said that most of the most important musicians or artists do their important um, work by the time they're 30. Now, Rod turned 30 in 1975. You know, Pete Townsend turned 30 in 1975. Mick Jagger turned 30 in 1973. And if you, you know, are bothered with these things, you start to notice that the quality deteriorates around about that time. You know, mm-hmm. even though, yeah, their their commercial success often often, you know, Rod Stewart recently, you know, with it, with these albums he's putting out, is 
you might be selling more than ever. I don't know. That's right. Well, they, they have. I mean, the great American songbook, that, yeah. was, that took everybody by surprise. And yeah. then, you know, yeah. you know, I think he just did it because, you know, he had that um, life-threatening surgery uh, on his mm-hmm. vocal cords. With the, you know, he had a, a can- cancerous growth removed. Mm-hmm. And um, he had to learn to sing again. And those are the songs that sort of suited his voice, you know. Mm-hmm. And who was to know that they would be some of his biggest, if not his biggest selling albums of, all, of his career, I think. Yeah. I could be wrong, but... Uh, this is pretty close. Um, so, yeah. so tell us, uh, how do the faces end? Well, the faces ended, I think it was almost like a, a, a natural end in a way. I mean, although it was a bit of a messy breakup because, you know, Rod was getting bigger and bigger and, and he was recognized as a, as, you know, Rod Stewart, the great superstar. But, of course, the bands now were being billed as Rod Stewart and the Faces, which was, you know, annoying to certain members of the band, particularly Ian McLagan. And, and even Ronnie Wood, who, you know, is quite easygoing, even, you know, he thought, well, hang on, you know, we started this band as the Faces, even though they were always being billed in America as Rod Stewart and the Faces to, by promoters to help sell tickets. So there was always this sort of uneasiness there, um, even though they were still doing great business, they were touring and uh, selling out places. But um, there was that thing over Rod being billed over the rest of the band and getting more attention. And also, just Ronnie Wood, you know, had been courted by the Stones and, you know, he was considering his options and looking towards, you know, his horizon as to what he was going to do because, you know, you could see that maybe the wheels were going to come off fairly imminently. And um, so it just happened that uh, the band was due to go back into the studio after that final 1975 tour and start recording a new album. And, um, you know, Rod didn't show up because Rod by that point had become a tax exile and was living in, in California. And Ronnie came back from that tour and went straight to, I believe, Montreux in Switzerland and started recording the Black and Blue album with the Stones. So Kenny Jones, Ian McLagan and Tetsu were sort of there wondering what was happening. And then um, when it was becoming obvious that Ronnie had pretty much become the Rolling Stones in all but name, um, Rod announced, totally was, According to him, McLagan, who had no idea that uh, it was about to happen, Rod uh, gave an interview to one of the big tabloids over here in Britain, the Daily Mirror, saying that he'd left the faces because he was tired of his uh, guitarist being on permanent loan to the Rolling Stones, quote, unquote. Um, and uh, so that was it, really. I mean, they staggered on into 1976, they gave interviews to the music press saying that they were going to record with or without Rod, you know, and, but of course they booked some sessions and, and Ronnie Wood never turned up and it was pretty obvious that that was it, the end of the game. So it, it sort of went out with a, with a whimper, really, rather than one sort of like, you know, huge farewell concert or something like that. You know, that, that was the end of it. And, and then now jumping ahead, 35 years, they, they've, Played a few shows, a couple. What are they doing now? What are Faces up to now? Well, this year, of course, is a big year for them because uh, the, the Faces 
and the small faces under one umbrella are being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on April 14th in Cleveland. So mm-hmm. they're sort of finally getting overdue recognition. So whether there'll be any shows around that or whether they'll just play the, the ceremony, I've no idea. Um, there's no word what the songs are up to, if anything, this year. They're, they're celebrating their 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ronnie Wood would be available. Whether there are going to be any more shows with um, with singer Mick Hutnell, I've yet to hear of any definite plans. But uh, you never know. We, we could be surprised. We could see a tour with Rod. Possibly not. But it mm-hmm. would be good at least if they just do several shows, several selected shows as sort of one last, you know, laying the ghost, if you like, of, right. of the band. Right. Well, th- uh, thanks, Annie. It's a great book. Um, w- what are you up to now? Are you working on a new book of any kind? <laughs> I'm resting. <laughs> but, rest- uh, I, I've, I've got a few ideas for various projects, a uh, few arms in the fire, um, just waiting to see where they'll end up, um, but nothing definite as yet. <laughs> okay, well, again, uh, I've always been a big fan of Faces and, and, and early Rod Stewart, some of my favorite music ever, and, and I think your book is, at least at this point, has to be uh, the definitive Faces biography. <clears throat> so uh, thank you for being on our show. Well, thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure. It's been good talking to you, and uh, um, I hope people who listen to this will go out and read it and just appreciate how much of a great fan the Faces really were. I hope so. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with Andy Neal about his book, Had Me a Real Good Time, Faces Before, During, and After, published by Omnibus Press in 2011. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.